I've seen a lot of people talk about electoral politics and people who participate in it as like low-key having sold their soul to the devil. And there's a reason why people don't trust our politicians. They can be two-faced. They can say one thing till they're in power and then completely fail to deliver. And so we all have a lot of reasons to be skeptical. And at the same time, it feels just more imperative than ever that we actually stay grounded in reality in the reality that there is a two-party system that has immense power in this country and that makes or breaks people's lives and in this current moment is breaking too many people's lives and particularly uh, people who are in the margins of society and have been disenfranchised for years. And if we want any of the visionary, bold, exciting programs and policies to come even close to the finish line, engagement with the political system feels like absolutely essential for us as organizers and activists. This is Surviving Elections, a mini-series about midterms and movements on Healing Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and we're focusing on the 2018 midterm elections in the U.S. and the intersections of electoral politics, social movements, and well-being and sustainability all month long. We have some amazing guests who are joining us, uh, most of whom recorded in the middle of a very intense campaign cycle. So we'll give it up for the folks from Sunrise who are joining us today to talk about movements and election cycles. We'll be hearing from uh, Nancy Leeds, the founder of Campaign Sick, and Becca Rast, a campaign manager uh, for the Just King campaign in Pennsylvania about uh, women-led healthy campaign culture and intervening on toxic culture in the campaign workforce. We'll be talking with Meg Riley from Campaign Workers Guild about the movement to unionize campaign workers. And later in the series, we'll also be hearing from candidates running for office about their experience, including Stacey Abrams running for governor of Georgia. And finally, processing together victory, loss, and all of the emotions and reorienting that comes with the day after the election. So we're so glad you're here with us. There's so much to dig into, and we hope that this will be a space to have some of the bigger picture conversations about strategy, about bringing our full selves into this work and making this work sustainable. That might not be the kind of conversations that we're getting in sort of the hot take news world right now, yeah? So hopefully this is a place that can be both smart and relevant and also really grounded and bigger picture and more like a place of rest um, and a community to have bigger, meaningful conversations about how we can uh, really use this electoral cycle toward liberation. And we're really lucky to have partnered with an organization that is doing amazing work that we believe in to bring you this series. So check it out. This mini-series is sponsored in part by Groundswell Action Fund. Here's their Director of Civic Engagement, Kanita Toffee, to tell us more. Thanks so much, Kate. Today, women of color are changing the game in elections as candidates and as voters. Less talked about is that women of color have historically been and continue to be the force that has moved progressive agendas forward. One of the fastest ways to win freedom for all people in the US is to support the leadership of women of color, including transgender women of color. 
We at Groundswell Action Fund have made that commitment. The fund, which is the largest in the country, centering women of color-led 501c4 work, gives people an easy way to donate to organizations that are not just talking to voters before an election. They are engaging voters year-round in the ongoing work of advancing real justice and democracy. We support them through grants, technical assistance, and by organizing other donors and funders to fund their work. The bottom line is that women of color are the MVP of social change in this country. Progressives must stop benching us by underfunding our leadership and then acting surprised when the scorecard shows losses on climate change, immigrant rights, reproductive rights, and other issues. We have to put our MVP back in the game to win change for everyone. And Groundswell invites you to join us and donate by visiting bit.ly forward slash Groundswell Action. Yes. So in the coming episodes in this series, you're going to be hearing from several grantees whose work Groundswell Action Fund is supporting and partnering with. Thank you so much to Kanita for sharing with us. And folks can find the direct link to donate and support their work in the show notes. Today, we are talking about social movements and electoral work for a showdown of strategy, values, and culture. We're asking, should we be building social movements for the long term that embody all of what we deserve? Or should we be focusing on engaging in the current reality of the political cycle to win what we can while we still can? Varshini Prakash and Will Lawrence of Sunrise Movement are joining us to blow up all of the binaries that I tried to set out for them and explain how their work makes sense of the rhythms of elections and movement vision. All of my efforts to get them to fight or argue about it were totally futile <laughs> as they're running a really incredible strategy uh, with a national movement of young people who are fighting to uh, reverse climate change and one of the key strategies being getting fossil fuel money out of politics. You can read more about Varshini and Will's bios and also learn ways to get involved in Sunrise Movement in the show notes, which is the description connected to this episode. Here we go. Welcome, Will. Welcome, Varshni. How y'all doing? Hi, Kate. Thanks for having us on here. Doing well. Thank you. I would love for folks to be able to hear you introduce yourself um, talk about kind of the role that you're playing right now and also share with us how are you arriving? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Varshini Prakash. I am from Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm 25 years old. And I'm the communications director for Sunrise. So I have the wonderful job of being able to share with millions of people across our country and the world, all of the powerful work that Sunrisers across the country are doing. And I am arriving <laughs> in a little bit of a state of exhaustion, I would say. I am coming off of somewhere between three to five weeks of travel, I'm not quite sure, and a lot of work and not a lot of days of rest. And so the conversation about healing feels very, very live for me in this moment. Hi, uh, my name is Will Lawrence. I'm here in Lansing, Michigan. I am the Michigan um, State Director for Sunrise. And I am arriving, I guess, with a lot of energy and excitement 
coming off of some some of the same travel as Varshini, but not quite as much. And I may still be uh, headed up uh, towards my peak <laughs> and uh, not on the way back down yet. Um, but feeling a lot of energy coming off of a meeting we had last week, thinking about uh, the rest of this year as we lead into November and then what's going to come after that. Cool. Thanks for being here. Um, and for folks who are listening, can we get a rundown from y'all of what Sunrise is? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start and then maybe Will can add on. Um, but Sunrise is uh, building a movement of young people and we are working to transform the anger and frustration of witnessing basically a lifetime for most of us of political inaction on climate. Um, and working to translate that into long-term grassroots power for change. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is really trying to get at the, the root of the political inaction, which we've identified as being the outsized and, and corrupting influence of oil and gas money on our political system. And we're also working really hard to put values-driven, people-powered candidates in office who are going to take the issue of climate change as seriously as science and justice demand. Um, and so a lot of, of, I think what sets us apart is that we're youth-led, youth-driven. Uh, I think that's a huge strength of ours. And we're also really trying to merge grassroots strategies for change. So we're combining both the protest and demonstration type issue-based organizing that can be really effective for getting our story out into the public and conveying the urgency that we all feel so, so deeply in our bones about the climate crisis. I'll just add that uh, this year we're focusing our efforts in five politically significant states, including four swing states, where there are critical elections either for Senate or for governor, uh, as well as important congressional races. Uh, and then in addition to that, we're also focusing in New York, New York State, um, where there's a big battle happening uh, to both take on Andrew Cuomo um, through the Cynthia Nixon campaign, as well as take on the power of the establishment Democrats uh, through the uh, Independent Democratic Caucus, IDC, um, and so that kind of gives a sense of where we're at politically. We believe in um, defeating the right-wing billionaires who have taken over the Republican Party while also fighting for a Democratic Party that actually represents the people and especially young people whose lives are on the line as a result of climate and environmental injustice. That's what's up. So um, I know that, I mean, Y'all know that I'm here in New York working on the Cynthia Nixon campaign. By the time that this airs, the primary will have happened. Ah! Um, I've been really grappling with how to engage in the electoral piece, both with my effort, but also with like my belief, right? Like kind of my my personal investment. And I'm curious about, I mean, I think I know a little bit less about your whole backstory, Varshini, but like both of you really came from a very movement-driven perspective, right? Not a politics perspective. And I'm curious about what does it even mean to take the leap from doing movement work and grassroots work and seeing how screwed over we get by both Republicans and Democrats um, and then making the pivot to actually choose to engage with that system. Like, what is that leap of faith? Does that, should, I, should I infer that Sunrise, like, 
has great faith in our democracy or that you feel like we can, you know, the Democratic Party can someday actually stand for our values. Like how, how do you sort of walk yourself from, you know, thinking about the movement that we need and then engaging in uh, an electoral system that, um, that is so far from being ready to like fully embody our values? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and one that I feel deeply, I, I feel personal attachment to this question also because I have never really liked politics as we think about it electorally. I mean, when I was growing up and as a young child, I was so devastated and frustrated about the ways in which our world was operating, how it was hurting people. And at the same time, very much was like dissociated and did not want to participate in the electoral in the political system more broadly, but in electoral politics for sure, largely because I think I didn't see people who actually represented me or I didn't see people who looked like me, who uh, believed in the things that I believed in. And then also on top of that, saw people who sort of verbally said that they believed in the things that I believed in. And then when they got in office, didn't follow through. Um, But I think the moment that I really started realizing that it mattered was um, in 2016 after the election happened. And I saw both like this political churning that was just tearing, like just really, really shifting the way that politics in this country operates and how people participated in the system. Um, And I've just seen, I've seen a lot of people talk about electoral politics and people who participate in it as like low key having sold their soul to the devil. And there's a reason why people don't trust our politicians. They can be two faced. They can say one thing till they're in power and then completely fail to deliver. Um, They can conform to what the establishment uh, wants them to do within like years of being in office and like, fail to fully carry the voices of people into power. And so we all have a lot of reasons to be skeptical. And at the same time, it feels just more imperative than ever that we actually stay grounded in reality, in the reality that there is a two-party system that has immense power in this country and that makes or breaks people's lives. And in this current moment is breaking too many people's lives and particularly uh, people who are in the margins of society and have been disenfranchised for years. Um, And if we want any of the visionary, bold, exciting programs and policies like Medicare for all or 100% renewable energy economy uh, to come even close to the finish line, engagement with the the political system feels like absolutely essential for us um, as organizers and activists. How do you think about that will with movement? Because I, 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 I'm so with you, Varshini. And then also I'm thinking about some of the community that we share that's like movement strategy community that would say too, like, well, anything that happens sort of through our political system is short term and the lo- and just get can get flipped and reversed right within like a two year period. It's like, we have DACA, now it's going to be repealed. Now we're going to have it again, right? Like it's so volatile and there's these patterns of extreme swings that continue to follow each other, right? And that I think movement folks would say like, the only real long-term investment that we can make is dramatic transformation of society or building the alternatives that we need that create the political climate that like forces politics to follow us. Um, 
which I know y'all have like ascribed to that perspective also, and maybe it's a both and, but yeah, I'm curious about maybe Will for you, like how these things come together. Yeah, well, I'll just extend your example. And if we want to talk about dramatic swings in the climate movement, we, the climate movement is a very young movement. It basically came into formation as we know it, uh, right at the tail end of the Bush years. And the whole tactical repertoire of the climate movement, uh, as it became something that could be called the climate movement really was developed under Obama. And under Obama, we developed a whole tactical toolkit that was about shifting public opinion and building pressure on a given issue to the point where uh, the sort of timid, but perhaps ultimately sympathetic Obama administration would do the right thing on a given policy, um, like Keystone XL or like passing the Paris Agreement or like, stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline um, right at the end of his term. Uh, And all the while, we were also shifting public opinion on the larger question of climate change writ large. And we saw after Donald Trump won that within the first six months of his administrations, everything that the climate movement had fought for and won under Obama was wiped out. And there are organizations in the climate movement that left a lot of power on the table in the 2016 cycle. And frankly, organizations across the landscape are now floundering because they don't know, we don't know how to operate underneath a Trump presidency because the whole identity and the repertoire of the movement was developed under Obama. So we've entered a real catastrophic period for the strategy of the climate movement where there's a huge vacuum of strategy and leadership um, and it's a result of losing that election. So <laughs> if, if, if we had taken even a small amount of the people power that we had amassed over those eight years and applied it, I think we probably could have, you know, made up for, uh, you know, 80, 90,000 votes in a few key states that ultimately swung the election and all of the policy terrain against us. Um, and I also just fundamentally believe that we can practice movement politics in a way that builds power cycle to cycle. So I don't buy the idea that it's necessarily short term. I mean, just here in Michigan, we're coming off of a very, very exciting and inspiring primary campaign where Sunrise was working alongside Abdul El-Sayed, who made an inspired bid for governor of Michigan. And we endorsed him back in February when he was polling at around three or 5%. And, um, People thought that he had a shot at victory in the last couple of weeks, and he ended up with uh, around 30% of the vote, um, finished in second, and got over 350,000 votes. Came up short, um, but nevertheless, um, 10 days after that election, Sunrise had an interest meeting here in Lansing where we had, I think, 25 or so people uh, in the room, many of whom had been Abdul campaign volunteers and others of whom had been working with Sunrise, but in support of Abdul. And we said, you know, Abdul's campaign was only ever a tactic as part of our broader strategy. And we're moving through to the general election. And then after that, we're moving through to 2019 and 2020 and beyond. And our mission is to make climate change matter in American politics and build our movement every step of the way. And God bless Abdul. He's a beautiful human. I'm so thankful he ran because he he really did advance politics in this state 
by years uh, in making his run, and he demonstrated that there's a constituency for these kinds of ideas. But we're on our way, and we don't need him to be governor or uh, in order to accomplish our aims. So we're on to the we're on to the next, and we're stronger than we've ever been. That feels related to me to the experience that I have uh, in Wisconsin around the 2011 uprising in our state uh, when our our new governor at that time, Scott Walker, just unleashed a slew of attacks on working people. Um, the kind of most uh, most famous of which was taking away uh, collective bargaining rights for public workers um, and also rescinding in state tuition for undocumented students, taking away state health care access for pregnant undocumented women. Um, and the intersection of sort of like a movement moment and an electoral moment was so intense because you know, hundreds of thousands of people were protesting and filling our capital in Madison, which for Wisconsin, 200,000 people is like the most people ever. <laughs> like that's so many people compared to our population. And, um, you know, we're, we, we occupied the capital and like Democrats that were the closest to us on our issues, but were Democrats, like started doing these incredible things like dragging their desks out of the Capitol building onto the lawn of uh, the lawn of the Capitol in February in Wisconsin in the snow to like take, to make a point that they were taking office hours, right? And like listening to the people. We, we had Dems that were behaving like, you know, movement folks who were trained in civil disobedience <laughs> and like creative action. And then that energy got funneled into an electoral cycle to try to recall our governor, which was like an incredible suspend the rules kind of bizarre strategy. But we, but we lost. I think when, you know, when you talk about Abdul, like there is this movement building piece where I think a lot of people read the news and say, oh, well, you know, that candidate lost. And so that strategy lost. And I think what we see in Wisconsin, even though we lost hard, I mean, Governor Walker was even reelected. Also, there are, there's like shared connections and shared interest. For example, I was working with undocumented youth at the time and teachers had not really been with us in a significant way, like ultimately supported the humanity of their students, but weren't willing to take any risks. And through that recall experience, people like, you know, like white uh, working class people um, who work in the public sector um, teachers, undocumented students, like all of these folks developed a really fierce solidarity and cross relationship that they hadn't had to use before that continues to shape the way the possibilities of movement work in Wisconsin. And so I, I do feel converted around this piece of like, uh, almost like the, the electoral cycle is like a state, like a, like an action, like a big action. Right. And what are we building to remain after that happens? Right. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you kind of approach the conversation with the first question being a, a distinction between grassroots movement work and political work. Because from where I'm sitting now, that doesn't feel like the distinction at all. Uh, it, I understand the question because I definitely did used to see it that way. But I think a lot of these boundaries have really been scrambled since 2016. And there is a lot that everybody is learning from each other. And I think there's a lot of things that uh, are very refreshing to me about the political organizing world um, coming from the 
the non-electoral uh, organizing world. Um, I mean, for instance, there's something beautiful about the ultimate accountability of election day, um, where the task of, I mean, you want to talk about being grassroots or being with the people. The ultimate uh, test of your ability to connect with people and to organize numbers and connect with a lot of people is whether or not you can win an election. And to the task of winning, I mean, 10,000 votes, let alone 300, 500,000, a million votes in a big statewide election is a remarkable organizing challenge. And it really requires you to sort of sharpen your tools. And there's a lot of grassroots organizers in the movement world I know who I wish spend a little bit more time sharpening their tools or who I want to ask to try to go out there and reach more people. I wish they had to try to win an election or to get 5,000 signatures on a petition or something, because frankly, um, they don't have, uh, uh, not everyone has that fire to go out there and, and, and connect with lots of people. Now, I know that there's different kinds of work and there's work that's deep and there's work that's broad and, and there's a role for all of it. At the same time, I think we live in a country of 325 million people and we all need to be figuring out how to connect with a lot more people pretty quickly. Yeah, I totally hear that. Um, there's something that's so... Um, organic and so public oriented about knocking every door in a district, um, talking to everybody, right? Um, and also having to reach the masses. And so a question I have for you is, you know, for a lot of us, like what comes up in not being energized or excited about electoral work is the fact that it also doesn't include all of the masses, right? Um, that so many people are disenfranchised in this country and historically it's been significantly worse. Um, our democracy has never included everybody. And on top of that, corporations and billionaires are um, really controlling the way that our political system works. Um, also, the two-party system is uh, not promising, right? We usually don't get what we need out of any of these systems. And so I'm curious, you know, as you're, you're energizing folks uh, from all different backgrounds to get engaged in the political process. What is the story of democracy that's empowering that you all feel connected to and, um, and tell at sort of in the, in the midst of these contradictions? So people, people say that, you know, democracy in America is, is a lie because it has never included everybody. And even now it doesn't include everybody by a long shot and different people have to summit different mountains in order to participate in the most basic ways in our system. And, and really the conclusion I hear is that because American democracy is flawed, that means it doesn't exist or it isn't real. And I think what's more true is that democracy is, is not an all or nothing proposition. And the sphere of democracy can be expanded and contracted. And that's actually always been one of the core struggles in our politics. Every generation of Americans has fought a battle to expand democracy to all of us. And there has also always been a group seeking to restrict democracy to the smallest number. And it doesn't always go in the same direction. I mean, we can lose what previous generations won. 
Uh, and it, that could be because we don't live up to our promise, or it could be because the opponents are stronger than they were in the previous generation. So I just take very seriously that past generations really have fought and died for the right to participate in the most basic ways, such as voting or holding office. And it's a cliche, but I, we really need to reckon seriously with what that means. Because from their vantage point, that was the absolute minimum to be able to participate and advocate in any of the other ways that we advocate today. And another story that just really brought this home for me was um, I had the opportunity to travel around the country with a fellow named Mathika Mwinda, who is uh, chairman of the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance, which um, networks civil society organizations all across the African continent uh, to advocate at the UN and elsewhere. And he is uh, Kenyan. And before he was a climate campaigner, he was a pro-democracy campaigner in Kenya. And so I was asking him about some of those days. And he said, well, the first thing we had to do before we could have a climate activism or anything else was we had to open up the democratic space. And I said, what does that mean? What is the democratic space? That's a phrase I haven't really heard. I'm not familiar with. And he said, well, it's freedom of speech. It's freedom of assembly. It's the ability to issue grievances about our government's environmental policy or any of its other policies. Because previously, you do those things and you go to jail right away. And maybe you get beaten or tortured when you're in jail. And so that really was stunning to me. Because as he described it, opening the, de the democratic space was absolutely a prerequisite to anything else that people cared about and needed to survive. And so I, I take that democratic space very, very seriously. And I think another aspect of our politics today is to recognize that there are people in this country who wanna take that away from us. And they have no attachment to the ideal of democracy. They will keep it in name while ending it in practice if they, if they need to, and they'll take it away in name and practice if they're able to. And these people have names and their addresses. They're the Koch family, they're the DeVos family, they're some of the leading white supremacists, and they have no regard for democracy itself. And we better find out how much democracy means to us. I, I love that perspective, Will, of just speaking to folks from other countries, because that also for me like brings so much accountability and is a huge part of why I'm involved in this electoral cycle, which is not something I typically would be. Um, like this sense of responsibility to not allow for things to slip further back than they already have here because of the incredibly dramatic consequences that that has for the rest of the world. Um, and so that sense of engaging in the imperfect, but actually being in, entering the battle around will we be becoming increasing, increasing toward the ideal of democracy or slipping back further away from it that we actually don't have a choice of just disengaging, like how we talk about uh, being silent in situations of injustice is choosing the side of the oppressor. Like there actually is no static status quo, right? And so we're either contributing to momentum in one direction or the other. Yeah, it is entirely possible for things to get much worse. And I don't wanna see that happen. <laughs>
that's one that that that's a good reason to engage in itself. Uh, I think we can we can fight for a lot more than that, but that's a factor too. Yeah, I'm I'm really appreciating that reminder around a global perspective on the fact that things can get much worse, and really the responsibility and accountability we have on a in a glo- very globally impactful way. Uh, to do everything that we can in this country because we are so interdependent uh, with countries around the world and also have such a dramatic impact um, on international politics. And I'm thinking about, you know, sort of the original excitement with which you both were talking about reaching the masses, um, engaging the public, having this huge project of a sprint during an election cycle, right? And I'm curious about that up energy, like how that impacts you as an organizer, whether you have noticed it changing the way that you show up in your organizing practices um, or even as a human being on a day-to-day basis. How is that for each of you? I think it kind of largely goes back to what Will was saying previously about the distinctions not being quite so sharp. Because when I think about the next few months, I don't think, oh, the primaries are here and then the general's here and then it will all be, we'll have a huge nap and then we'll continue to, you know, we'll jump into the next campaign, whatever it might be. I sort of see it as like, you know, the the primary is one moment to crescendo to and then it's a jumping off point for another moment of organizing between then and the election. And then the election is another uh, moment to reach out to absorb, bring in, increase the participation for so many more people. But then our crucial, um, our crucial role that I think um, we need to be particularly responsible for is then how do we translate that energy into actual movement momentum as you're talking about into the future, into being like, um, okay, we just had this election, we won some, we lost some, but we're using this, crucial juncture to actually put forward the type of visionary policy on climate that's going to define the next two years. And we're going to call for the sort of broad-based popular demands that we really need to have happen in 2021 and 2023 for our generation to have a livable future. And now it just sort of seems like the the next two years is one giant campaign and each of these elections is a moment to build power collectively and engage a new base of people and then find more meaningful ways for them to participate. In many ways, I, I'm it's sort of new for me to step into electoral politics and have actual deadlines for things. <laughs> In some ways, when you're doing the work of climate, which feels like it could have an infinite deadline to begin with. Um, and then on top of that, yeah, it, it's sort of useful to have these like touch points or checkpoints of like, how far are we actually in realizing this broader vision of, of the types of uh, like economic overhauls or, um, you know, policies that we actually need to pass to confront the issue at the scale that it requires. Um, like November 6th is going to be one of the biggest moments for most people politically this year. Whereas for me, it's felt like every three weeks has been the biggest political moment of the year. Um, and so it's, it's yeah, it's sort of an interesting reframe between like what what is urgent and a, a moment and uh, a movement moment for me versus what it is for other people and how to kind of uh, organize our strategies and work around that as well. I'll say a few ways it's changed my organizing. Um, I have more shorter meetings 
people in the political world have very short meetings. They like to get to the point. Uh, I, I try to hold a line for a basic level of how you doing, check in, especially with it's a close colleague, but people really want to get to the point. Um, you know, I have really come to value even more the emphasis on creating positive culture that uh, I learned in the social movement world. Um, because, and some of the craft around training that I experienced in the social movement world, been to a lot of kind of mediocre sort of trainings in the political world where you just kind of sit and you take notes and you get another PowerPoint presentation uh, and don't really even get an opportunity to talk to each other and certainly not to reflect much on your own experience. So I, I think that if social movement organizers really get ourselves together to be waging struggle in the political arena now, we're going to find a lot of success. And one of the reasons why is because there's stuff we know how to do that the political organizing world just, just doesn't know how to do. Um, but I think compared to Varshini, I, I, I definitely am experiencing a little bit more of the cycle to cycle feeling. I mean, if you haven't like campaigned for a candidate who you really love and are inspired by, um, I highly recommend it. It's very intoxicating. Election day is thrilling. GOTV for Abdul was awesome. And, you know, no regrets about any of that. And I think, uh, you know, you need to have the candidate. I think campaigning for a candidate who you're not inspired by is something I haven't had as much of an experience with. And that probably sucks. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it you know all of this is really making me think about culture. Um, when hearing you talk about the shorter meetings and less relationality and connection, and I for one am am enjoying right now for this set period of time uh, operating in a campaign environment that's in a very clear sprint. Um, it can be refreshing to just go as a team and have a clear aim and a clear date that that campaign ends, and. I'm super aware of some of the costs of that, um, that I'm experiencing, that I'm seeing other people experience um, in the sense that speed often just means that um, we jump to the lowest common denominator in terms of um, the way that we interact with one another. Um, it favors a very masculine, aggressive energy. Um, it favors a very white supremacist, it's all about productivity, capitalist energy. Um, and uh, we can quickly sort of end up in a very unintentional way back into replicating oppressive dynamics when uh, we're in this environment that really rewards going fast and it rewards winning, um, which can also be like a very competitive and transactional way of showing up. Um, on top of that, people are exhausted from working so hard. And um, when our defenses are down physically, when our emotional and spiritual needs aren't getting met in the same ways, and we don't have time to decompress with our families and our partners and our friends, um, we get triggered more easily and people harm each other more quickly. So I'm curious, particularly for you, Varshini, whether or not it feels true as a woman of color working in an industry that is super white male dominated in communications and media around politics, um, whether you feel any of those cultural costs or how either of you have witnessed um, that being at play in your work. 
it doesn't feel wrapped up in identity for me in the same way. I mean, there's a lot of things that I notice. For example, I'm in communications and I look around at all the people who might be mentors for me in communications. And I notice that every single one of them tends to be, uh, tends it tends to very dramatically lean white and male. And I notice that most of the political directors tend to lean white and male. Um, a lot of the finance directors tend to lean white and male. And so there's definitely, a, there are moments in my life when I kind of look around and I'm like, is this, is this the place for me? Or is this the right, um, is this, yeah, is this the place where I'm actually at my most powerful or is this the right place for me in the long term? Um, and at the same time, when I actually like get into the work and and it, it becomes largely, it, it just like becomes less about identity for me, but I don't have like a good <laughs> way of talking about why that is. It just is like, <laughs> I'm like, we need to solve this issue and we need to do it by any means necessary. And if that means is, uh, engaging in electoral politics, if that means is engaging in movement politics, if that means is whatever it is for you, like we need to get our hands dirty and um, like do what it takes. I think part of what helps is that I have a team and I have a support structure and I have a group of individuals who care about me, who encourage me to do what I need to do to keep myself healthy for the long term. We sing songs, we, you know, do stretching together. We like or encourage each other to take breaks and vacations and the culture that has largely been set to me is one that is filled with close connection and relationships where I feel fulfilled and like I'm working with my best friends all the time and I know that that is deeply unique to me um, but it makes it yeah it makes it a lot less heavy with the weight of every other ism and issue that I would need to face in the world if I were working in a different cultural setting. Um, but I feel really blessed to be in the organizing community that I'm actually in. That's amazing. Just hearing you talk about that kind of connection. Like I'm just imagining folks who are listening, who just heard you say, you know, I feel like I'm working with all my best friends and knowing y'all's crew, like that's what it looks and feels like, like you, you are. <laughs> and but I think for most people listening, it, it that feels like not necessarily unattainable, but like, whoa, that would be the dream. How do you do that? Because not only, you know, have, have you all developed this core team in Sunrise that like is in, inherently great, but you're doing very particular things that create that kind of sustained connection. And so I'm curious about, is there anything that you would share with folks who are like, that's what I want, right? Like, what do you think is working in terms of the well-being and the sustainability within the culture that you're creating and you're organizing? I'd like to start with where you begin. <laughs> if you're in a situation where you don't have that, I think the first step for us was to find the other people in our organizations that we were in, but also in other organizations who were also dissatisfied. Not just with the culture, but with the strategy or the vision of the organizations we were part of. The people who were looking around and saying, mm, none of this is really gonna work, is it? And no one seems to be having a plan to make it work. And we don't have the power where we are now to change that. And 
then we rallied around each other and we, after a lot of worrying about it, gave ourselves the opportunity to make a break from our work as it was and take the time to plan something that would be better. And we're deeply indebted to the Momentum community for supporting us to enter that process. But I think everybody, if, if, if you're you know, a schemer and you kind of have a vision of how things could be better in your political or your movement world, you kind of know who the other schemers are. Because you have conversations that are about like, you know, whatever needs to happen the next month or whatever needs to happen the next two months. But then there's the people who you find yourself having a conversation with that's about what needs to happen in the next year or the next two years or the next five years. And uh, whatever your context is, if you start to look for those people, you'll find them. And those are the people I would recommend building your little nucleus with. Uh, And you can build the seed of, of something better. Yeah. I think the ability to admit that the culture you exist in isn't actually the one that you want is extremely revolutionary to begin with. And for a lot of people, I could imagine being in a particular organization that isn't uh, nourishing or supportive. Starting Sunrise was, yes, wanting a strategic intervention in the movement and wanting a shift in our... politics and at the same time felt like we actually needed to create a really big cultural intervention in the left in the movements that we were a part of as well and part of that was acknowledging that the culture that we existed in was not working for us and wasn't functioning in the ways that we needed it to in order to actually grow and be powerful and invite as many people to participate as was possible right and so, you know, so many of these things that we do in our movements, so many of the, the calling out of people who don't maybe have the same academic understandings of oppression or, yeah, the, of politics or, or the world that we bring in, um, creating cultures where people who are on the margins of society don't feel like they are included or like people in the space want to learn and get to know them and be treated just as humans and and be approached with curiosity. Um, Seeing so many of these things play out, you know, in the student left specifically, which was where I was, but also seeing it replicated basically everywhere else that I looked at made us realize we were like, we cannot build a movement where we want to engage thousands, tens of thousands of people if we don't set a culture that is drastically different than the one that we are witnessing in our organizations to, to, to begin with. Um, and I think then comes in a lot of the stuff that Will's saying about like, find your crew, roll with your crew and make sure that like you can create a different culture. Um, but part of it is like a lot of times when I've been in those toxic spaces, thinking that this is just what it is and that there's something personally wrong with me. Or even in the moments when there are actually times when uh, in our own organization, there are things that just aren't okay. Like we're working too much. We're uh, dealing with each other in a uh, non-productive or, uh, you know, in otherwise toxic ways. We're being sharp with each other. We're being judgmental, whatever it is. Um, Acknowledging that the fault might be with, the culture and actually trying to shift that rather than just like internalizing blame has been something that has been really a, a struggle for me. I think this is where part of like 
yeah, being a woman and also being a woman of color in this organization has sometimes been challenging is like, at what moment is this um, about the broader culture or at what moment am I just going to internalize it and making the choice to actually step out of that internalization into actually the broader shift. I, lo- I love how you all, like, you're really just like breaking all the dichotomies that I keep trying to set up. Like, <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, just your talk, your talk about the culture piece and uh, like culture and strategy as things that could be potentially conceived of as different camps. And um, this, this piece around like, look for the people who who haven't settled like look for the people who have a similar imagination um and get with those people right and then and then i feel like the second thing um that feels really critical is that i actually feel like that little bit of organizing happens most places like we really quickly i mean i was i entered a new work environment like a month ago within the first week i already had locked eyes with everybody who was going to be my little implicit crew right and then i think the question is this thing where you you're talking about kind of worrying about it for a while and then actually taking the risk of leaving the places where you were and starting what you thought was needed i feel like that's the thing that we rarely hear about actually happening and then i think this that's what we end up with toxic culture is like actually the people who had really astute observations and bigger imagination locked eyes, got dissatisfied and stayed where they were. Um, and then we end up with just like super dysfunctional organizational culture where we're all fighting all the time. Right. So I, I, I want to end by asking you both. I wish we had like a whole nother hour because I know that each of you have a lot to share in terms of your own, your own healing journey and the interplay certainly of sort of the culture that you're creating and the relationships that you're creating and the movement work that you're doing, but then also what you're doing for yourself and kind of your own trajectory around healing and um, centering your humanity and your work and this vision, you know, Varshini, like I want to learn from you when you're a 60 year old movement elder um, and still around and like sharing your lessons with us. Um, So maybe we can start with Varshini, like what, how, how would you share with us about sort of your experience in trying to integrate healing or, or spirit or well-being into the work that you do and the way you show up in the world? Yeah, no, this has been a huge question and journey in my life. And I largely feel like I am still figuring it out. Uh, and it's a struggle every day. You know, some days I feel really, <laughs> I feel very smooth and collected. And then other days it feels like I'm just sputtering across the finish line. Um, I, I think a lot of this question goes back to who I actually learned about taking care of myself or taking healing, health, whatever you want to talk about, spiritual well-being, who I learned that from. Um, And it comes back to specific gurus or yogis in my life. And the first guru and yogi I feel like I've had in my life has been my mother. And she is a fantastic woman. She's fierce and powerful and so smart and really, really deeply emotionally astute. Um, And she's also, you know, being an immigrant in this country, um, being a woman, I think has, has faced a lot of trials in her life that have left her feeling exhausted. And at some points, really, really low emotionally and health wise. And I have learned more about what it means to be resilient in the face of 
really intense trauma and um, physical, mental exhaustion than anyone from my mother. Um, and I feel like what I watched her do was practice a commitment, like literally the commitment and the uh, dogged determination that she will be healthy in her life every single day. Um, and that has been, uh, yeah. And then, and, and juxtaposing that with, with moments when I felt really depressed, really anxiety ridden or frustrated and just low, um, having downloaded, I think a little bit of watching my mom's own resilience in the face of that, uh, and downloaded that into myself, feeling like in that moment, this like really intense determination at the lowest point to, uh, figure out a way, however I can to be healthy. Um, there's this guru that I love who says, um, if your goal in life at the end of your life is to be peaceful, then you will only rest in peace, which I love and think that I don't want to be just peaceful when I'm dead. I would like to be peaceful throughout. Um, and so I think part of this like commitment, making a commitment every day to a healthier life, not a perfect life, not like having all of my ducks in a row and having it all figured out, but spending a little bit of time each day reminding myself that I deserve uh, peace and quiet and joy and fulfillment in my life and that I can get that through this work, but also I can get that in other ways and, and trying to find the balance in all of that. Um, and then the other thing I'm really committed to is just practices that bring joy and fulfillment into my life. And I've been trying to expand what, what spiritual well-being actually looks like and is defined for myself. Um, and so maybe it means like, 15 minutes of yoga or 15 minutes of meditation, whatever. But it also means like, maybe it's like a 10 minute long dance party where me and my partner figure out how to dance the samba like we did Saturday night. Or like, maybe it means uh, an hour of playing basketball with my brother or volleyball, or um, it means uh, a really long walk by myself with like my neighbor's dog. Um, and I think like not having to, having spiritual health be defined, like confined to a set number of things that I have to do in order to feel good uh, has made it really possible for me to feel more holistically, like well-rounded and healthy all in all. Um, yeah. I just feel this like fierce sense of commitment that I, that I, I will figure it out. And I think that's like 80% of getting there too, for me. For me, uh, I think perhaps similar to Varshini, it's, it's, really a set of practices that I've developed mostly on my own. Uh, and I think there's a degree to which this all has, this is always a, a personal spiritual journey and being on a personal spiritual journey is for me, the, the most has been the most valuable thing. And many times with the support or encouragement of my, you know, movement colleagues, but it, it certainly hasn't been something that, has been, or I wouldn't have wanted it to be organized through a movement or political space because it's so unique to me. And I think people's uh, people will, people need different things and are on their own journey. But for me, uh, I've really come into a, a, a very serious sort of exploration with uh, organized religion and theology in my twenties. Uh, I was raised as a, as a, 
Christian in the United Church of Christ, but, you know, kind of casual and then was an atheist in my late teens. And then um, in the course of doing organizing work um, and thinking about climate change, patriarchy, racism, inequality, these, these, these evils that really plague us. I mean, thinking about, uh, sometimes I felt like the message I got early on in my organizing life was, you know, if you can just be smart enough and clever enough and persistent enough, you can learn from people who've done this in the past and you can fix these problems. And humanity can fix these problems together if we are just clever enough and organized enough. And it's all about the power of the people. And I have gotten to a point where that is just not enough for me <laughs> to be able to believe in a in a in a, a positive outcome because I'm flawed and people are flawed. And so I have found myself really valuing uh some sense of a higher power, which is still coming clear uh, to me, and I don't know exactly how to describe it, but some sort of heavenly assist or grace or a little good fortune or good luck even is something that I definitely feel like I need and we need in order to be able to get out the other side of this. And it feels good for me to be able to admit that it's not all in my control or our control. And the, the most true thing I've found is, is the, the Tao and the Stephen Mitchell translation in particular, everyone should read. But uh, the one of his verses, which is the ultimate provocation for organizers, starts by saying, do you want to improve the world? I don't think it can be done. And so sometimes I just read that to people. <laughs> but then it goes on and it says, you know, the world is sacred. If you it cannot be improved, if you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. There's a time for being ahead, a time for being behind, a time for being in motion, a time for being at rest. There you go. We have to sprint sometimes. A time for being vigorous and a time for being exhausted. And the, the art of, of living and also the art of politics is to go with the way of things, uh, which doesn't mean to accept things as they are but it means to work kind of with the forces of the universe and try to discern what the actual processes, the truest truths about the universe are and work with those rather than trying to, you know, push the river back upstream, which is never going to happen no matter how long you stand in the river. So that's the kind of thing that's been really uh, helpful for me. And I'm definitely still on my path. Um, but it surprisingly has taken the form of a pretty serious exploration of actual religion, which is not something I anticipated. Uh, I also had the experience of being very agitated by that passage. <laughs> the idea that we could not. Now or previously. Previously. It's Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams uses that passage as a core, a core, uh, a core teaching. And I can't really think of a better way to end than with that word that Will has left us on. So of course, as always in the show notes, you can find a link to the incredible work that Sunrise is doing. Um, and you can learn more about Will and Varshini. And we're so excited that y'all are with us for this uh, mini series about the election. We're going to be diving into 
uh, further conversation about what it is to transform the culture of campaign work. Uh, we're going to be talking about the movement to unionize campaign workers and the meaning of victory and loss. Um, so we're really glad you're here and with us and playing with these ideas and want to extend so much gratitude to Will and to Varshini from Sunrise for sharing your wisdom with us fully in process. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Links to learn more and find resources from this episode are found in the show notes or at healingjustice.org elections. This week, we're including the Tao Te Ching excerpt that Will read a part of here in this episode, along with links to Sunrise and a thank you to Groundswell Action Fund, who's resourcing visionary political organizing led by women of color, low-income women, and transgender people across the country. Join our email list to get election survival tips right to your inbox at healingjustice.org elections. We're sharing our new episode and a unique election survival tip each week. And this week, we're sending you a podcast playlist of 10 podcasts to help us access grounded perspectives on politics and social change. So sign up for the email list to check that out. At the same site, healingjustice.org elections, you can also see the upcoming episodes and guests listed out so you know what to expect. If you have thoughts to share with us, if you want to talk back, we've done a lot of talking at you. We'd love to hear back from you. Find us on social media. We're really active on Instagram at Healing Justice. We are new-ish to the Twitter, so join us there. Get into conversation with us. We're at HJ Podcast on Twitter. And of course, we're on Facebook at Healing Justice Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts and engage in conversation with you. And finally, if you can support this important work, this is an all-volunteer project. It takes a lot of time and so many incredible team members to put this together. You can support our work at patreon.com slash healingjustice. Huge thank you this week to Guido Giorgenti for production work, to Park Ballantyne. Thank you to Josiah Werning for visuals, Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for sound design, and Danny O'Brien for gifting the music that we use at the beginning and end of each episode. We are so grateful that you're here digging in with us to these bigger questions as we navigate a rocky political situation together. And we hope to see you back here next week.